Welcome back to Significant Lots, everyone, and Happy New Year. Today, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into military watches. For a lot of people, I think it's one of the most interesting niches of collecting. Vintage watches especially are all about provenance, and with military watches, often you can track down this provenance. There's a lot of markings, engravings, stories, and documentation you can often track down with some work if you want, which can make collecting them a lot of fun. They're also interesting because of the price points. You can get started for a few hundred bucks, but there's even something for the deepest of pockets. We've seen Rolex mill subs sell for half a million dollars in the past couple of years. With that, Eric and Gabe, we wanted to start um, talking about military watches. So Eric, let's start with you and then let Gabe take it from there. Can you give us a bit of a brief overview of military watches, why you like selling them and why you like collecting them and what you enjoy about them? I find them interesting, you know, for a number of reasons. And I, I think we can make the distinction. There are many military watch collectors focused purely on issued watches where they were formally issued by a government, you know, to members of their military. Typically, those will have markings on the back that indicate their property of the government, things like that. Sometimes the exact month and year it was issued. That kind of provides a lot of information that you don't get when you just, you know, buy another watch you know, won't necessarily give the year on it, things like that. Military watches, as we kind of know them, started with World War One and the trench watches, which were often just pocket watches with kind of lugs crudely welded on the case. They would have thin little straps, uh, often of nylon or leather. And that's kind of the birth of, of the wristwatch itself in terms of popular wear of a wristwatch and you can see some of those watches with the cool shrapnel guards on top of the glass crystal um you'll see one in the book a man and his watch uh by matt Haranek. uh jack carlson who founded growing blazers has one of those i helped him find from waltham so so that's kind of the birth and, and throughout kind of the history of of watches we see this connection between what people in the military were wearing and what was popular. And there's kind of irony with some of these things. The Rolex Mariner made for the Royal Navy, in fact, was not very desirable back in the 80s and 90s. And I'm aware of dealers in the UK buying them from military surplus stores for a few hundred dollars. They were about half the cost of a civilian Submariner and then throwing the dial away, you know, cutting the fixed lugs out, drilling them out and changing the bezel insert and throwing that away to make it a civilian watch, polishing the engravings off the back. So that was, you know, ironic because those bezel inserts alone, just that small piece of aluminum could be $50,000 plus for the correct fully graduated bezel. But I, I think it's an interesting, you know, it's just an interesting category. And it's one of the main themes that we haven't seen for a thematic auction, perhaps for political correctness reasons or something like that. But also because there aren't tons of people wanting to sell military watches. In fact, people are more in acquisition mode than selling. And usually with a thematic auction, you have a basis for starting. So say someone has 20 great watches and then you can source 30 more to have 50 pieces or you know get to 100 watches, whatever you want for the thematic auction. You know, there just aren't too many people that want to sell their great military watches. With that point regarding the majority of people are actually 
interested in purchasing rather than than selling do you think that that would make for not only being like the first official military watch auction if it were to ever come up do you think that that would also lead to kind of a crazy you know turnout or maybe even a lot of bidding wars in in itself more so than what you see in a in a regular auction or other thematic auctions in general i think it would match you know the hysteria we've seen with other thematic auctions we would probably see a big jack up in prices. That's just the common theme. You announce a military or a thematic auction of some sort, and then the dealers all start hoarding them and pushing the prices. And then you see big numbers at the auction, and then sometimes it gets so crazy, the market implodes later. I think, uh, you know, we just haven't seen it yet. There's not tons of six-figure military watches out there. You know, most are... A lot less so from an auction house perspective it's not as interesting as you know a double signed auction where you can have 2499s with retailer signatures and things like that but it was something i was looking into when i was at christie's and kind of one of those ideas we had in the works as something that would be a smaller thematic auction but very cool yeah, it would probably make more sense to have the uh, military watches on neutral territory instead of in New York and, and Geneva or somewhere <laughs> no. else like that. No. But uh, Tony, you actually had you had raised a point uh, for Gabe that I was going to let you just kind of tee off for that one. Yeah, Gabe, I mean, you've mentioned or alluded to your history in military service before. And in previous episodes, we've mentioned you bidding on or owning all kinds of military watches from Marine Nationale subs to your favorite Axis watches like Langa's and Seikosha Kamikaze watches. So from your perspective as a collector, what draws you to military watches? And also, actually, before we even dive into that, you mentioned you might be wearing a military watch right now, um, if you want to share the story about that. Yeah, I'm actually wearing a Ben Russ Ultra Deep, which is one of two watches that I bought at auction, which are, to my knowledge, the only watches that were issued and have proven CIA provenance. They came from the daughter of the original owner, and I have a provenance letter from from her directly, and I have her phone number and email, and we've corresponded on her father's exploits, who was this guy in the CIA that they dropped behind enemy lines in Laos during the Vietnam War, and he was running reconnaissance missions on basically a stolen plane, and he wasn't a licensed pilot, and he basically just ran these <laughs> unlicensed flights from Laos. Uh, for for a while for the duration of the war and you know these these were the watches that were on his wrist at that time and you know it's it's great and for me um, the military watches both the history of the evolution of military watches um, you know flyback chronographs are really come from the need for pilots which were mostly military at the time to you know stop the lag time from doing a stop reset on two different buttons where you could just go boom and you have a reset right away when you're doing navigations to you know dive watches the evolution of loom for example and you know uh, deeper dive you know deeper depth ratings and all, aside from that, also the stories of the people who wore them and what I, what I like to look for is um, people, especially in special forces or in special mission units who, uh, who wore these and did some very notable um, stuff or who were part of, you know, operations that, that we would all know. 
but you know i i love the the gamut that you can that 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 runs you know through the military watches you know you can have a watch from vietnam worn era ben russ for a couple hundred bucks you know three four five hundred bucks or you could have you know a fap 6263 or you know god knows what for the six figures that you want now or you know the the an sas issued or an sbs issued mil sub but you could have the equal watch for example like the tutors you know from you know that are, that I would argue are even rarer, like the IDF issued tutors, the seven nine two eights, and you know they have two variants there. And then if you want another cool IDF issued uh, dive watch, the Eterna, the Contikis are pretty rare, but you know they were they were well issued over over time, and you can get one with some good provenance as well for you know a few thousand dollars, maybe I'd say like two or three thousand dollars for a good one you know and it and it's really really kind of an interesting gamut gabe when you're looking at you know watches with excellent provenance and and then you look at like the watch if there's some sort of flaws i'd be interested to hear like what's the weighted factor of where these things kind of make sense for you to want to purchase something if the story is so great but the watch is you know just completely degraded or or has had certain issues with it What's the what's the mindset of, of approaching that when you're trying to weigh the two factors? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I always I always try to steer clear of the perfect condition military watches because they haven't seen anything. It's it you know it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, um, you know I've, I've I've worn a watch in the military and I and I know what it looks like after you know basic and advanced training and then you know airborne school and all that kind of stuff. Uh, e- e- there's no way that a watch comes out in pristine order. And to me, that's not interesting because it lacks any of the provenance that is interesting to me. And there is a certain amount that's expected of well, the watch broke, we needed to get a part, or I wore it throughout my life and you know we couldn't find a Benroth stem, so we put in something else. There's a margin for that. Obviously, on the lower end, that makes that that's more okay, let's say. But when you're talking about mill subs, you know, like Eric said, you want to have the correct hands, you want to have the correct dial, you want to have the correct bezel, because that's really where the big numbers are. But again, that's not necessarily the most interesting thing about, about, you know, about some military watches, you want to have them kind of beat up. And then you expect that, you know, it'll have some parts that could be replaced, or that could be, you know, not the best condition. I I did have an issue with one when I when I bought one at auction, and it was, and it was portrayed as all original to the watch parts. And then I did some digging, and it was a watch that had been sold a couple of times. And I saw the evolution of the condition and the pieces of the watch that had been completely changed. And although they were period correct, it was too much to the point where I felt it was sort of a Franken watch. Um, and it was a watch with a, with a Bakelite bezel. And so that was something that I thought was rare and why I was interested in it. But then once it kind of came out that, you know, this is an aftermarket, it, it wasn't born with the watch then, cause it's a Bakelite bezel. Then I felt a little iffy about it and, you know, the auction house agreed and then, you know, it was all good, but I, I kind of want a beat up watch with some damage to it, and I want to know that it's that it's been through as much as it possibly could. 
Eric, you're known as kind of a conditioned Nazi. Um, does your standard for condition and originality vary when you're looking at military watches or issued watches like this? First off, I must declare I am not a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the I would agree with Gabe. In fact, I sold Gabe an awesome Benrust Type 1 that looks like it went through hell. Uh, but it did, and it was involved in uh, uh, serious uh, operations in the Middle East. So um, I think that's part of the story, like the crystal's crazed, it's super worn, the bezel scratched, but the scratches kind of match the wear on the crystal, and it just looks so cool. Obviously, the case is very worn, too. Um, so I think, you know, originality for me is very important with these pieces, honestly more than condition just that it's original and has a story to tell and um gabe and i i think kind of agree on that front yeah i mean i i i would agree that kind of the mint condition particularly with more serious military watches isn't quite as interesting i think mint condition ben russ and hamilton's that were issued is kind of cool new old stock like this watch was supposed to be issued in the 70s and somehow never was or 80s but it's more interesting if it has a story to tell and is original. Yeah, and, uh, and Eric's actually sold me a couple of really cool Ben Russells, and each one's had a great story. You know, he kind of alluded to one that belonged to a clearance diver, but he also sold me a, a Type 2. And if I, if I remember correctly, the story was that some guy showed up to SF Dive School and he didn't have a watch. Yes. And the guy was issued the watch in, I, I guess, around 90s. Vietnam, and he was an instructor. <laughs> yeah, and then he took off the watch and gave it to the student yeah. who wore it through. Yeah, um, it was crazy. And the guy yeah. was then in, you know, basically he was issued a watch that was 20 years old. It was one of those things you were supposed to show up to dive school with your own watch. Basically, you know, the US military doesn't issue watches now. You have your own. So this was in the 90s. He was <laughs> showed up. He thought he would be getting a watch. They said, where's your watch? And he said, I, I don't have one. I thought I was getting one. And they're like, let me look around. They rummage through all this old equipment uh, and then find the watch. And they're like, here, wear this. You know, they didn't check it for, for that it was water resistant or anything like that. But they uh, it worked well for him across all kinds of operations. He wore it. Uh, and all kinds of drug uh, enforcement operations in, in Central America. And uh, it's uh, it's crazy. He said I couldn't post a photo of him handing me the watch because there's many, many people out there he put behind bars and otherwise affected who would like to see him dead. So <laughs> he doesn't have any photos online. And then Eric, by uh, proxy, is the one that gets hunted down and extorted for information <laughs> physically. Yeah, um, about where he is, yeah. Eric, first first question is, what watch are you wearing? And is, it is a military watch. And then second question, you and Gabe can't be allies on every you know aspect of collecting vintage <laughs> watches and hunting for them. Where are the areas that you guys differ? Gabe, I'm also going to expect you to try and get in there and bust it out. <laughs> All right. First, I'm wearing a Benrus Type 1, which is, a, for me, one of the quintessential military watches. Uh, what makes it special for the Benrus Type 1 and Type 2 is they were not made for civilian use. This isn't like a military version of a civilian watch. 
whereas a Daytona FAP is a standard, you know, typically Sigma Daytona that, you know, the government just purchased and then issued. So there's some people who on the issued side want very specific special watches that are issued that are not something you could just buy. Obviously, the Milsub is a quintessential example of that, or the military Seamasters because they had fixed bars, different bezels in the case of the Rolex, um, different hands for the Rolex. It's that for some people, they want only military issued watches that were not available for public sale. <clears throat> Other people don't care as much. The Benrus, in fact, they were US made watches with Swiss ETA movements. They were, they're these, this, big block of steel. A friend of mine, Jed, who's watched Safari on Instagram, met a guy who whose job as a young man, maybe, <laughs> I wouldn't say man even, he was like 12 years old, but every watch that was before it was issued, he would drop and make sure it kept, still kept running. Uh, <laughs> and that was part of the testing process in New York. <laughs> and, you know, the guy's older now, but... Uh, you know, he's like 60 years old, but he was like, remembers just dropping like hundreds of these. <laughs> and um, that was the testing. Obviously, there the stems can be kind of an issue on these because it's a front loader watch. But in fact, uh, Darius, who is one of the, the leads with the Benrus uh, company today, you know, they they bought a couple of these to take apart and people thought the case back was integrated into the case, but in fact it's glued apparently. So he removed the case backs and they, they didn't know that it wasn't like a solid piece, but it would be hard to make it like that if you think about it. So, um, you know, so kind of crudely made, but they work great obviously. And the dial, you know, the type one dial is just so distinct, obviously kind of borrowed from the Submariner. Um, and as a result, it's not a surprise. These watches went from four or $5,000, I would say at the beginning of 2020 to 12 to 15,000 plus now. Um, so it's one of the watches that's appreciated most by percentage <laughs> over the last two years. Yeah. I mean, they're just cool as heck. They really are awesome watches. Now I think Gabe and I pretty much agree on why we like them. Uh, I'm personally not as interested in Axis watches as he is, but a friend of mine, also Jed, uh, Watch Safari, who's a, a great military collector as well, and is Jewish, said he has no problem handling Nazi watches because no Nazi gave up their watch uh, willingly. So <laughs> they all come off people that were captured or killed. That is an interesting perspective on it. And my, my grandfather, both grandfathers served in World War II, but my dad's dad, you know, took uh, some things off Nazis when they were captured, like a sword and stuff. So, you know, I have a, I have a Nazi sword that he captured off a Nazi officer, but it's, it's, he, he took it. So I think it's cool. <laughs> Don't try and break into Eric's house. He'll go uh, full, <laughs> full barbarian on you. <laughs> yeah, Gabe. Any um, any differing opinions that weren't cited there? And then what is <laughs> what is it about Axis watches? 
I, I it, it's specific access watches and specifically that Seikosha, which I think is just great. It's a failed kamikaze, you know, it's just, it, you know, the, the novelty of that, you know, it, I, I have, you know, bid on, on some like Italian era, you know, World War II era Panerai's, but I've never won any of them. It's not, um, you know, Rolex movement stuff. It's, it's cool. You know, I mean, it's, it, the access stuff is actually really interesting because you'll find things like Longines and and you know other watches that were issued to to the you know the German troops or the Vichy or whatever, and you know I, I just find it to be interesting in terms of the you know the the, the time period for watches, um, but I I think I. I really uh, focusing on on the the story of the watch and and the provenance but also on pieces that are um that are that are technically interesting so for example like the seiko gen 2 which was issued to the raf mostly helicopter pilots in the late 80s early 90s so a lot of those were you know desert storm uh time period pilots and it was if I'm not mistaken, it, it, it it's a quartz, but if I'm not mistaken, it's the first watch with a foudroyant, which is the tenth of a second, uh, ca- you know, counter on there, which is pretty cool. And you know, they're they're quite small analog watches, but they're um, you know, they're they're really affordable. You know, you could find a great one for a couple hundred bucks, and it's technically interesting as well as cool provenance. So I think there's there's a lot of value there again. You know, the majority of these watches were going to be issued to men. But have you ever encountered any watches that were issued to service women? I know that in like the Israeli Defense Forces, I think that women have been involved in military service for much longer than in the United States. I was curious if there's other, you know, countries around the world that you've noticed those types of watches come up. Um, not to my knowledge, but again, you know, because I, I focus in on certain time periods. So after World War II until, you know, the 90s. And so the majority of the operations were led by by men. Uh, most of the armed forces around the world still didn't have women, uh, female fighting forces and you know, until, until I'd say probably the late nineties, early two thousands. And even though, for example, women are allowed to go to buds in the U S there, to my knowledge, and I've asked around a couple of guys that I know who are, are still active in that community. No woman has actually passed buds yet. So I, I, you know, it, it's kind of like a weird thing. I mean, I'm sure there have been watches that were issued to to women who were, you know, working in support roles in World War II. I don't really focus in on World War II watches as much, so I it hasn't really come up that this watch has been specific to women. But I would assume that it would be similar watches that were assumed to that were issued to the men and to the women at that time period or later. I feel like it would be something that you'd have to really dig for like some obscure um soviet union um sniper that happened to be a woman that just jumped up and grabbed rifle and then ended up becoming you know really folklore or something to that effect it'd be cool to actually look for service women throughout history and try and see if there's any of them that happen to have missing watches or something to that effect they often women in that era that's when we first saw these tiny chronographs which i really love um, that are like 28 to 30 millimeters and they were made for 
for some uh, women pilots were them and also women in factories that were obviously working to time things uh, and that whole, you know, the whole movement of women into factories because men were overseas fighting. So um, I think Rosie the Riveter, you know, is kind of the classic. But um, yeah, they're typically weren't issued, but they're so cool. Like there's Galets and Hoyers that were very small and some other random brands. I have a Longchamp right now with a value 69 that's you know such a cool little watch some eternas as well yeah actually eric also i I, eric's kind of been my main crack dealer for for a bit but uh i he he uh i got um uh this really great cartier from him that i that's one of my favorite watches actually i've bought in the last five or so years um you know I, i think it's like 34 but it was the first three register chronograph movement and it's a really cool story because it was yeah universal and it has you know it was it has the vx import so the vacheron import stamp and it's put together by jaeger and cartier (laughs) on the dial and you know the if i'm not mistaken these were these were sold by cartier in new york for wealthy people going off to fight in world war ii yeah and there's you know what five known yeah it's there's very there's very few and they first kind of came across my radar because we sold one that was a gift from john jacob astor i believe the fourth at christie's that he gave to a friend of his going off to to war uh, and uh, the family sold it, and then I began researching. There's only a few known, and it clearly was basically something sold at Cartier, New York. <clears throat> not their typical thing, not your gold dress watch, but it was people he- heading off to war, but who were Cartier customers who wanted a steel chronograph. It's crazy. Yeah, those those chronographs are really interesting, and you know, one of our friends, Max, he has a chronograph that's very similar to Gabe's, and in, in the the condition is kind of different what you'll see on the ones by cartier they tend to have a little bit of um wear on the dials and cases a lot whereas they don't look as minty do you think that that's something that kind of is is jarring for the people who are obsessed with cartier as the you know very fine refined looking watches or is that yet to be appreciated kind of and understood i think yeah, people just don't understand because there's so few. I think there's only something like two with original dials. They've almost all been reprinted. I think there might be six or seven now known now total, but pretty much they're all all reprinted. So it is. It's one of those kind of odd things that I, that I love that Gabe does too. Just to see like a military watch come out of the fanciest luxury house in America for, for purchasing things. And, uh, you know, it just showed, uh, the whole world changed, you know, after December 7th, 1941. Gabe, you kind of mentioned one already, the Seiko Gen 2 that was mentioned, issued to the RAF as maybe an affordable entry point into vintage. It's a quartz chronograph issued in the 90s, 80s, maybe. Do you guys have other favorite places you like to direct people that are curious about military watches that they can get into at at an affordable price point and what the story is behind those watches? Yeah, I mean, we, we've touched upon Ben Russ a lot and, and you know, for good reason. I think there are a lot of uh, Vietnam era Ben Russes that are 
extremely affordable. Obviously, the Seiko Gen 2 is great, both technically um, as well as provenance-wise. And also, CWC seems to be a pretty good value. Um, you know, as you move up there, there's sort of more and more interesting watches. I, I haven't really followed what the price on Dirty Dozens are, but those were relatively affordable a couple of years ago when I was interested in them. Um, I, I, they probably have, have gone crazy, but another, another value, it's a little bit in a higher price point. It's, it's around the 15, $20,000 mark is the Breitling 817, as well as the, the Zenith CP2 Kyrellis, which were both issued. The Breitling has a cool story. You know, they, they, the, the government or somebody needed money. So they ended up selling off their stock of that on like an Italian website. There's a cool story on it online. Um, but those those have, you know, they're relatively rare. They pop up for sale uh, on occasion a couple times a year, and they don't really move much in terms of price. But you know, you could get and and it's the CP two case, so it's about thirty eight thirty nine millimeters, and then you get the Zenith, the CP twos, which are around, and that they made two versions of the civilian version and the issued version. Actually, the civilian version is rarer than the issued version, and Zenith has done a reissue of the watch since then but i think but they're they're good value in terms of you can get them with great provenance and you can get them beat up and you can get them for a good price especially if they're beat up because the civilian ones tend to be in pristine condition and people have sort of hunted those since the since the uh, you know since the reissue so i would i would start there um you know omega has sort of gone uh, parabolic. So those, those, some of those issued used to be, used to be relatively affordable, but I think, you know, there's, there's still, there's some, still some good stuff out there. You know, if you want to go to like the Rwandan, uh, you know, military, there are some, there's some interesting watches there. You know, obviously some of the IDF issued stuff from Kontiki's on to Tudors are relatively affordable, especially compared to like a Tudor MN with decom papers. Um, it's just, you know the IDF ones are, are rarer, but the Tudor MNs with decom papers, people people just want those. Um, so you know that's that's there. And then in the next price point, I would even venture to say that the Brigade Type Twenty, which hasn't gone parabolic, is both an important watch and gives great value for somebody who's you know playing that slightly elevated uh, price tar- price league. And it's not, you know, again, it's not a mil sub price, relatively rare. There are a couple of versions of them and really hugely important historically. Okay, Eric, what about you? What are some of your favorite military watches, maybe starting at the entry level? I think um, there's a few that are, are still very undervalued. Hoyer, Buns, uh, Bundesfair, 42 millimeter, flyback movement, uh, Valjeu 220s, and just a super cool look with the big aluminum bezel. Those things have basically stayed pretty flat. You know, you can sometimes find them as low as in the fours, maybe as high as eight. And a decade ago, they were still four to five. So they really haven't moved uh, compared to everything else. And and the quality of, of the watch is very high. It's basically part of the succession of watches from, from Leonidas, basically Hoyer, bought Leonidas or merged to become Hoyer Leonidas, partially because of their military contracts and having that watch. Um, so, so that's very cool. Um, then 
I like some of the 1980s Hoyers as well for the Italian Air Force. They say AMI with the 3H on it. So kind of the successor to the Bundesfair model, which also has the 3H. And there's also a Hoyer Bund that was for the Norwegian Air Force um, without a 3H on the dial. Of course, there are civilian ones too, but uh, in general, prefer it with the red 3H because it really gives a nice pop of color on the dial. And then the IWC Mark 11 is just a classic. You know, they they wear a little bit, they can be a little bit funky because of the fixed lugs, how they sit on your wrist. Um, similar to that, the Smith's W10, which is, you know, in the $2,000 range, it hasn't moved very much. The one detraction on that is 17 millimeters between the lugs. And I really don't like the look of a larger strap kind of folded in and all bent up. So you have to get the right 16 or 17 millimeter fold through strap for it. But it's just a killer watch in terms of the dial and everything else. Uh, so yeah, th- those would be, you know, kind of on the sub 10 K category, what I would recommend. I have to say, I've always been curious about owning a Mark 11 or a Smith W 10 and it's the fixed lugs that have held me back on both. I think I can always like hear my grandfather, you know, who fought in world war II, like a lot of grandfathers just <laughs> yelling at me from his grave. I didn't fight for, I didn't fight in world war II for you to complain about fixed lugs, Tony. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, great watches. Obviously, I think the Caliber 89 is a really uh, sort of interesting history and long-standing movement in the IWC lineup. But anyway, so I think those are a couple of great recommendations. And the, not, and, that you needed, yeah. not that you needed my confirmation. No, Sorry, no. Go ahead. And the JLCs as well um, that, are, that are just beautiful. I love the, the distinctive kind of flat hour hand on, on the JLCs and the IWCs from that era. And price-wise, they really haven't moved that much i think because of the fixed lugs and they're also really hard to find in original condition obviously 99 percent of the iwcs were relumed by the the uk military uh, you know whenever you see the the t in a circle on the dial on those it's a relumed dial but that's acceptable and i think kind of a cool little touch uh because they, these were in service for a long time also if you go back, there's Longines and Omegas in bomb cases, made in England cases that are actually 1940s uh, World War II pilot watches that were then recased by the UK military. And then they have these kind of crudely reprinted dials. They're like one to $2,000 if you can find them. And the cases very much look like IWC Mark 11 cases. And it's just because the UK government was pretty decimated after World War II. So they were using things for decades and reusing them uh, to save money. So I, I just think it's very cool. These Omegas with like these very crudely reprinted black dials, but it was done by the UK government. It's interesting, that, and especially when the watches get basically given back to the government after the fact, you would imagine that some of the watches that you'd want to see come up for auction might still be technically government property but yep. you, you, i don't know whether or not that'd be something that the um that the uh, british military is focused on I, at the moment i don't think that. they are pretty bored i'm sure <laughs> in some days but 
Gabe, you touched on decom papers. Can you kind of give a little bit of inside baseball to, I guess, kind of vetting the provenance of, of some of these watches where you might find decommissioned paper? Is there other, you know, kind of regions where you won't find any sort of paperwork? Yeah, it's kind of uh, military dependent. The The most famous ones are in the UK, the Henry Hudson letter. And in for the Tudor MNs, usually you'll, you'll try to look for what's called the, the decom papers, which are from... You know, they call them uh, reforme papers, where they stamped it reforme, which means that it's been basically removed from the military and, you know, no longer service. These will usually be watches that are, that have exceeded, that, you know, the, the military will issue new watches. And so these watches no longer have a use. And so the military doesn't even bother disposing of them like they would for you know, weapons that are being phased out. So let's say you were, you were issued a tutor, um, you know, in the seventies and then you ended your career in the nineties when they were moving on to, I don't know, G-Shocks or whatever, they let you keep it. So usually you'll get, uh, but with all military equipment, you have uh, service histories. So a lot of these will, these, uh, these, especially from the French Navy will have, you know, every year that it's been serviced or that it's been run through to check because it is a piece of equipment. It's a piece that you have to take care of. You know, we know things are mechanical, they get dinged up, they lose their, you know, their water resistancy. So you'll look for uh, papers that say this that match the numbers yeah i don't have as much experience with henry hudson letters it's not something i've ever looked into but my you know my tutor mn does have the papers from from brest which is the 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 depot i guess in france where they have a lot of this equipment usually you wouldn't find it for the idf i haven't found any decom papers in italy either or or for the usa i i don't think we really do the do them in the US but yeah I mean usually you'll you know those are the two main ones that I've encountered are the French military and the UK military can we um, jump into uh, marine national watches I mean, I've read a book by uh, watch history called marine national and it, it touches on a lot of the aspects that you just talked about the transition to towards Casio and then there's also these really interesting kind of subsections of the collecting that are, you know, you're looking for certain individuals that are inscribing their, you know, initials on or the case backs um, when they're getting serviced. So I think that Marine National watches would be a really cool one to kind of jump into. Shout out to Watchistry and his book, Marine National. It's a great book. The Marine National, it's very interesting how that kind of field of collecting has developed over the last decade. Um, you know, there are, to be, um, to be clear, many watches where the decom papers were probably added by dealers because you used to just be able to buy blank decom papers. So because there was a significant bump in desirability and value, if they had them, people would buy them and just fill them in. So just be aware if you're out there in the market that you should do some research about whether they're legit or not. But one of the kind of eye-opening experiences for me was when I went to this Rolex Passion meeting in Maastricht uh, in the Netherlands in 2015. Jerome, who's watched my watch, basically pulled out this book, and he doesn't really speak English. is mostly French. And it's like a two-foot-tall book 
that was from the uh, Marine Nationale from one of their watchmakers. And it's all handwritten about when watches were serviced. I understand there's three of these books that are kind of now in different collectors' hands. So people look and request looking for their serial number in the book. And it's helped validate watches where we don't know if they were, you know, part of, of the MN or not. Maybe the case back was polished, but the inside has markings that look like they're from one of the Marine National watchmakers. And, um, you know, it's a, those books are very valuable for the collector community and have helped validate a lot of watches and also invalidate others. Um, and that's, you know, when he pulled out this thing, I had no idea what it was. And we're looking through all these kind of handwritten remarks, like page by page, it was like, uh, you know, feeling like Indiana Jones a little bit looking at this, this old manuscript. Yeah, I think that's one of the parts of Watch History's Marine National book that's that's really cool is he details why the ledger is is an important kind of piece of a significant piece of history essentially for it. And then he corresponds certain what was it, the initials in the in the case backs or initials when the watches was serviced and tracing it to the actual Toulon service center. It's it's very it's very cool. I guess Gabe teeing you up, what what can you kind of speak on in terms of collecting Marine National watches? Um, I mean, you want to look for, for ones again with the right decom papers and, and a good provenance with a cool history. You know, they're, they're getting harder to find, honestly. They were, there was a time where they just weren't that expensive, uh, and that, that time wasn't too long ago. But there, you know, I've seen a couple that, that are just not not correct at all and that's sort of the minefield that we have to navigate nowadays especially with these now which is which is weird i mean you know it's it's not too long ago again these weren't that that much money but uh you know that's that's really what i look for again is the the decom papers if you can check them with one of the books all the better um and then if it comes with a provenance letter or traceable provenance to specific uh diver or sailor that's pretty much what i look for and mm mn watches do they have the most variety in terms of brands that you can find would you say i would i would not i would no i wouldn't say that i would say there you know there are there are other watches that have gone that have been in service that have had more variety even when you look at for example the benrus type ones when you look at early ones and then you start there through the life cycle i think there are more changes that have occurred to those ones than than the tutors i would i would also say even when you look at uh, issued seamasters you have the 120s and the 300s and then you know that that those changes seem to be greater than the subtle changes in in tutors. I, I think there there are some things to look for with tutor, but generally it's kind of like a one one size fits all kind of thing. Whereas there are other even even for example FAP issued uh, Daytonas. You know, there's I, I've seen everything from a six two three eight, six two three nine, six two six three. I'm sure I've seen a later one as well. And, you know, I've even seen uh, Seamasters, FAP issued Seamasters, which is pretty cool and pretty rare to have a to have an Air Force issued uh, dive watch. So, yeah, it's crazy. The FAP had good taste. Whoever was in charge of their watch acquisitions back in the 60s, and 70s. <laughs> 
they bought what they liked. But I, I wanted to go back to Tudor, but maybe it's not even worth mentioning. But I was going to say, like, you know, people look to see if there's a bracelet. Oh, yeah. I wanted to mention straps, actually. Um, so going off Gabe's comment, you know, the watches themselves aren't even collectible just by themselves. The straps that came on these watches can be very valuable. So the the funny thing was, it's it's probably myth, but that many of these tutors were handed to soldiers without straps, uh, <laughs> which sounds like a very uh, um, a French thing to do, at least in in American ideas of the French. But they just hand you this Tudor Submariner with with the spring bars in it and say, "Okay, go use this in battle." Uh, so then these soldiers are out in the field and they took parachute cords with the you know yellow stripe in the middle and cut them with the the metal kind of curved end and then made their own straps out of uh, parachutes. And now those are popular popularized because of Erica's originals and her MN straps. Um, but the original parachute straps I've seen sell for a thousand dollars or more. And the original UK, there's only a few, you know, a small number known. Um, but I, I knew, uh, someone who paid over a thousand for one and the original straps, uh, for the mill subs and the Omega military Seamasters can be, have sold as high as $1,500 recently the Royal Navy gray. It's got a very specific type of buckle and some of the later seventies ones had stitching where the bars are earlier ones did not. Um, so there's a whole crazy community of, uh, people that, that collect just the straps themselves. And back in the day, people would buy these cheaper British, uh, military watches, you know, that were, were not expensive, like pulsars and things just to get the straps because the straps were worth like four or five X what the watch was worth. Uh, so it's, it's pretty funny, uh, just to see all the accoutrement that are uh, so valuable. Yeah. Oftentimes we see, we see, especially with the, the UK ones that we've seen a couple sell recently with, uh, you know, with knives, combat knives, dive knives. We've seen them with, uh, you know, compasses, Panerai is notoriously famous for having compasses, for having even uh, flashlights, for having, you know, you name it. So a lot of, uh, over the years, I think the a lot of the uh, military watches have come with additional gear. I mean, my, my Tudor MN came with a wetsuit, for example. Uh, I tried to put it on and then I got stuck. <laughs> and that was, that was hilarious. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll, you know, it's got the MN on it. It's an issue thing. <laughs> So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have, you know, they'll have accessories, you know, and I, and I, I don't logs. know that it actually affects. Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dive logs and, and, uh, you know, pictures obviously of, of, you know, the submarine, especially for the MNs, you know, I don't know how much that affects the price. Maybe Eric can, can, uh, speak to that, but in my experience, if, if the watch is good on its own, it'll just add more. Yeah. And same. And the other kind of related field of issued watches not military issued but comex watches for from rolex people go crazy if it has the original wetsuit and and the comex knives and all these things that are issued uh and i've seen um some of these rolex or issued meetings people putting on the wetsuits things like that i'm sure that the value of this tutor will go up if he a photo and 
his wetsuit with it on and and sells it with that accompanying it. Sure, it would at least be good for the show notes for the. It'll be good Instagram content, Gabe. I think you should. Do yeah, it. <laughs> I'll try. I got to take a video of it because it barely gets over my shoulders, so I get stuck, and then it kind of like chokes you up in there. <laughs> the trick is to try to get wet first. <laughs> That'll be perfect, and we got to put it on the uh, significant lots Instagram feed for all those listening at home. We actually have an Instagram page now too that you might not know about. I know we have another topic to touch on and, and I, you know, Eric, Eric had, has had a couple of these and, and I have one of these where the, uh, you know, the surplus bought watches that were bought by service members during their time, possibly even worn uh, during, you know, during their active duty um, and then, you know, passed off. We've seen a lot of speed masters like this and I, and I have a, uh, a vintage Ultraman that was bought like this. I remember uh, you had a Monoblocco um, Rolex that was that had a great story and a really interesting person who bought it. But what's your view on on the values of that? And, and is there a difference in value for for one of these civilian watches purchased uh, and yeah. worn during wartime? On I regions? I um, of course the market values them a little bit differently, but. I think they're just as cool. Like I have a 30 millimeter Longine Trey Take that was probably worn on D-Day with an engraving on the back from this gentleman who was uh, from Canada and involved in the D-Day operation. You know, he bought it in Canada uh, before he went to war, like a a lot of Canadian soldiers, and um, they weren't really issued things. So I think that's just as, as cool, you know, as many other watches that were issued, uh, even though it's not necessarily a very valuable watch. It's uh, very uh, personally meaningful. So I think those are just as cool. Some people, I think, get a little too strict on saying military watches are only issued and we only want the ones that are totally unique, not something the civilians could buy. Um, I think that's not as... Uh, as thoughtful about how these things actually were were used yeah i mean i know i wasn't issued a watch and i bought a, a the civilian watch that i wanted to wear and i modified it as needed um you know during my service but uh yeah i really loved that monoblock that you had that was that was bought by a very yeah very cool character yeah i would say i mean this was bought right after the war um and he was involved in in the great escape operation while he was in war and a lot of the people that were involved got Rolex watches sent into them into the the prison camps uh, because Rolex was very clearly supportive of of Allied officers. And they the letter from Hans Wilsdorf would say, "Don't even think about paying until you're back home." Uh, so uh, was very very interesting, um, you know. Uh, Patek Philippe also did that with at least one watch where they sent it into a prison camp. And uh, it was kind of a famous story from about a decade ago. Um, Just super cool. And then uh, the aftermath of of him losing his watch um, during a burglary, Patek Philippe actually sent him not the equivalent watch, but a very similar reference in gold. Yes. um, And then engraved his name on the back, which was a really cool thing to see and this was before really anybody was kind of you know Very focused on public relations watch coverage yeah. of, of companies so it was a really cool kind of heartwarming um 
a heartwarming uh, story. I'll put yeah. it in the show notes, though, for sure. Yeah. Was the guy um, American? I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this he story. He was an American, and he was um, he was in a uh, prisoner of war camp in Germany, wasn't he? Yeah, Germany. Yeah. Yeah, I think his name is Charles something, uh, but I'll, I'll find it out, it's and I'll great. link it. Yeah, it's a great story. We've got one more question, and then I think we're going to wrap up this episode. So a quick rapid fire. We're going to go around, and everyone, do you guys have a military watch issued or not that's kind of a grail for you either because of the story behind it or the rarity or the price eric maybe we can start with you yeah i mean i love the rolex bill sub i think it's one of my favorite watches to wear um whenever i've sold a couple as a dealer and whenever i have them i basically don't want it to leave my wrist (laughs) i'm going around it's just a classic i love the sub and then this the look of that watch is so distinctive i really believe that great ones will be a million dollars plus in the not too distant future because there are so few that are all original full spec out there probably less than 200 gabe what about you i think it would have to be any any almost any watch that that would part that that had a part in any really cool operations that served in special special mission units um you know i've I've always wanted to find an sas issued uh mil sub that's that's taken play you know hostage rescues here and there and that done a bunch of stuff um you know they're they're just really really hard to find i kind of personally i agree with gabe that for me it's not necessarily a grail watch it's finding a grail story behind it from the service member who who wore it or to whom it was issued design wise though i do love the rcn tutor subs that served as the black bay 58 inspiration i love those dials i love the snowflakes charlie what about you i'm not really a big military watch enthusiast so a little bit foreign for me but uh one of them that stand stands out is that um Captain John Edward Barbie. It was a watch that's like platinum early wrist watch from the 1910s or late maybe even early 20s. It's the one that uh, Eric had posted, and it's got this insanely tropicalized dial. That one was really cool. It's it's so bizarre of a watch that would be, you know, going into military service. Um, it wasn't an issued watch. It was as a captain's purchase before he went off World War One. But, I mean, it's definitely a, a watch that's out of place in the battlefield, you would assume. Well, guys, that's going to do it for Episode 7, our overview on military watches. Obviously, this is a huge topic with a lot to cover. So if we didn't hit your favorite country or military branch, stay tuned for a Part 2. Or let us know in those significant lots DMs what you'd like to see us talk about next. So thanks again for joining us, guys, and we'll talk to you again next week.